Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Bethany. I'm thrilled that we can be together both here in the sanctuary and across street in the chapel and as well online as we worship together. We're beginning a new series this morning about women in the Bible and women in the church. So please join me in prayer and then uh, we'll begin. Father, we want to thank you that we can gather here this morning. Thank you for your presence with us. And thank you that your desire for each of us is that we live a life of fullness, a life of hope, a life of generosity, a life fully invested in your story. And thank you that that calling and invitation is available to every one of us, regardless of gender, economic status, education, disability, ability, wealth, poverty, sickness, health, every one of us called. Pray, Father, that we would be responsive to your voice as you seek to bring each of us more fully into the story of hope you're writing in the world, and we'll thank you for that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Kind of the question on the table at the outset is, why would we do a series on women in the Bible? And there are several reasons, but to frame this, I want to remind you that the plight of women throughout history has been, just in general, a very difficult plight. More girls were killed in the last 50 years, globally, just for being girls than all the men that were killed in all the wars of the 20th century. In the 19th century, the central moral challenge was slavery. In the 20th century, it was the battle against totalitarianism. We believe that in this century, the paramount moral challenge will be the struggle for gender equality around the world. And it's clear to me, anyway, that the marginalization and oppression of women has been a pandemic globally, not just for a little while, but for 4,000 years. You can go back through history of not only Christian culture, but many cultures. And it's also clear that from the perspective of historians and sociologists, religion is often part of the problem rather than part of the solution, including Christianity. If we look back at history, we see in the name of Jesus, witch trials. Uh, we see the resistance of the use of anesthesia for women at birth because they're supposed to suffer based on Genesis chapter three. We see rates of domestic violence that have, have at times been higher inside the church than among the culture at large. We see in the name of Christ, women uh, shut out from opportunities to teach, serve in significant leadership roles. And uh, this oppression is now also coming to kind of the horizon of popular culture, Me Too movement, Time's Up movement, and this oppression of women has been, in my own experience, often a reason that people have left the faith. I mean, they've read their Bibles and they've said, man, I, like, I don't understand how God puts up with what goes on in terms of abuse and marginalization of women. So people leave the faith over this, but it's all based on actually a misreading of the Bible, as we'll see in this series. Here's the thing to see at the outset. Women are called to lead called to confront powers through civil disobedience, called to teach, called to serve in significant, highly visible ways. Next week, we're going to look at this woman named Deborah in the Bible. She's a judge. She exercises leadership over the entire spiritual, social well-being of Israel. She becomes a military commander who brings Israel to victory. If I put it in other terms, she led the nation. She led the nation spiritually, musically, legally, politically, militarily. And she's a woman. <laughs> So don't tell me women can't. Women did and can and must. 
And all of us must find our calling and live into it so that we can display together what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. The dividing wall has been broken down. There is therefore now no longer, what? Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, black nor white, poor nor rich, sick nor healthy, PhD and illiterate, male nor female. God has created a community and people are called without respect to those identities that the culture uses to put us in boxes. And so what we look at this morning are uh, two women uh, in the book of Exodus. Their names are Sifra and Pua. Now, I was just going to ask, who studied Sifra and Pua in here? <laughs> One person. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here this morning because you don't know anything about Sifra and Pua, and we're going to learn this morning. Uh, and and uh, what it is, is it's a story of two women involved in ci civil disobedience. So here's the deal. Uh, in Exodus chapter 1, uh, the Jews have moved from the promised land down into Egypt to get food. Now they have multiplied. They're, they're now outnumbering, actually, the, the, the Egyptian people. And so the king uh, over Egypt, he says, hey, these people are more and mightier than us. We need to enslave them. So they enslave them, and they still multiply so much that they become majority over minority Egyptians. And then the king of Egypt develops a plan when he says to the Hebrew midwives in verse 15, listen, when you're helping the Hebrew women give birth, and you see uh, on the birth stool, if it's a son, I this is what I want you to do. This is the king speaking to midwives. Kill the male children. Throw them in the fire. It doesn't say how. Kill them. In the throw them in the water. But all Hebrew boys born, they, have to, they need to die. This is genocide, right? So this is kind of the context of the story. And by the way, this is the first time in the, in the history of the world you see publicly on display anti-Semitism, which has a long, dark history. And the persecution of the Jews is often uh, the same reason that any people group are persecuted. There's three main reasons. Tribal reasons. It's like our people versus their people. And we want our people to be on top. Cultural reasons. The Egyptians hated shepherds and Jews were shepherds. And economic reasons. Slavery ultimately became an economic matter for the Egyptians. They needed the, the, the free labor of the Jews to sustain their economy, or so they thought. And these three reasons, tribalism, economics, and, and, and cultural reasons are the same reasons that today people continue to persecute other people groups. And we see it all over the world. Human trafficking, slavery, the refugee crises that are, that are plaguing Western civilization. It's all happening because of persecution of people groups, right? And then again, in this particular people group, the Jews are the, are the people group through whom Christ will be born ultimately. And so this is also kind of representative of the, like the, the resistance toward Christ being made visible. And, 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 and in that sense, this story has great application to all of us because our calling is to make Christ visible and anything that would hinder making Christ visible, we need to do war with that, right? So that's, that's the context here. And you're going to discover with me three qualities in these women who became voices of hope, Shifa and Pua, three qualities in, that will help all of us be voices of hope in the midst of oppression. These women are, number one, God-fearing. Number two, they're courageous in their disobedience. Number three, they stand in solidarity with the vulnerable. 
God-fearing, courageous in their disobedience, standing in solidarity with the vulnerable. Look with me at these three things, beginning with the first quality, these women are God-fearing. So watch, here's the story again. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, uh, Shifra and Pua, and he says to them, verse 16, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth, and you see him on the birth stool, if it's a son, put him to death. So now, this is, don't you love this? Verse 17. But the Hebrew midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded. So here's the first thing to see. What, what leads us, like, most fully to be vested in the story of hope that God is writing in the world? Like, when you go back and you look, what's at the foundation of people who are living well? And it's always the same thing. People who live well, it starts with this, they fear God. They fear God. That is very interesting because you're told in the Bible th over 360 times, this is a phrase in the Bible, fear not. Fear not, for I'm with you. Fear not, do not be afraid. You know, the angel shows up. Fear not, fear not, fear not, fear not. And then this phrase, make sure you fear the Lord. And so, like, what's up with that dissonance? What I want you to understand is this. When God says fear not, here's what God is saying. Fear not, for I'm with you. Because if you're, look, if you're fully in God's story, you have nothing to fear. The one place you want to be in all the world is in the center of God's will, doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. So if you're doing that, there's no reason ever to fear. And even if you fail, fear not, I'm faithful to you. But then the one thing that you want to fear is what? Not being where God wants you to be. Not doing the wrong thing for the wrong reason at the wrong time. Like, don't go there. Fear missing God's story for your life, God's call. Fear missing God's call. That's what he's saying. So, so uh, the fear of God kind of means here, Paul says it this way, 2 Corinthians 7.1, make a clean break with everything that defiles us or distracts us, both internally and externally, so that our entire lives are fit for God through the fear of God. In other words, I'm motivated by wanting to be where God wants me to be. And, and so fear of God becomes kind of this motivator for making the right ethical choices at any given moment. The one question you need to ask in any situation is this. What is God asking of me? What, is, what does God want for me right now? What does God want for me in my marriage? What does God want for me in my employment? What does God want for me vis-a-vis -vis my relationship with my manager, vis-a-vis -vis my relationship with, my, with employees? What does God want in my, for me in my neighborhood, my city, in my world? Like, what's, what is God asking of me? That's the one question, and it's, it's so liberating to kind of ask this one question, and it says here, these midwives ask that question. What does God want? The king wants us to kill these babies. Yeah, we hear that. What does God want? Their choice was not defined by career preservation, by political tides, by whether the issue of saving Jewish boys was popular or not. The beauty of fearing God is this. <clears throat> None of those questions matter. Pardon me. It's time for tea. None of, the, none of those questions matter because the only question a God-fearer ever asks is this. What does God want from me right now? I was, that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Find the will of God in the moment and do it. So then I kind of ask the question as I'm reading this story. I go, well, where, how did they learn to fear God? Where did they get the fear of God? Oh, you know, they went to Bible study. No, there was no Bible. No Sunday school. No kind of, you know, indwelling Holy Spirit. We don't even know if these women are Jewish or Egyptian. 
Their names are actually Egyptian names. So there's compelling, compelling evidence that these, these are uh, quote-unquote Gentiles here, saving the Jews. So here's the deal. Where does the fear of God come from? Yes, it can come from the Bible. Yes, it can come from, uh, you know, preaching and teaching and, and our own time with God. I get all that. But in this case, this is what you know, the fear of God came from general revelation. And what I mean by that is Revelation chapter 1 says this. Hey, everybody knows what God expects. In other words, when you're born, this is C.S. Lewis' argument in Mere Christianity. When you're born, you, like, you grow up with this innate sense of what's right and wrong, right? This, I mean, this makes sense. You don't have to go to church to know that murdering infants is abhorrent. You don't have to go to church to know that. You know it. You know it inside you. And so here's the thing. These women knew the difference between right and wrong. This is a major theme in literature. It's a major reason that uh, people argue for the existence of God. We're, we're told over and over again, C.S. Lewis says this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, uh, Dostoevsky says this in the book Crime and Punishment. In essence, they're all saying the same thing. Everyone on the planet knows the difference between right and wrong. And, and, and so our problem isn't that we don't know. Our problem is that we know and don't do. So they knew. And, and when you know and obey, good things happen. But watch this. When you know and you don't obey, really bad things begin to happen. Because when I hear, when, when I hear God speak and I know the right thing to do and I don't do it, Hebrews 3 says it this way, by not doing it, you know what's happening? I'm hardening my heart. In other words, it's getting harder for me to know the right thing. Every time I disobey what I know to be right, it's, it becomes harder to hear God. My heart is becoming, God is still speaking, I'm becoming hard of hearing. And I can't, I can't hear God. God's voice gets softer and softer and softer and softer. Do you understand? Of course not. Your heart's hard. No, kidding. God's still speaking. I, I mean, it's, it's just as abhorrent uh, to, to send a, uh, a Jew to the oven at Auschwitz at the end of the war as it was at the beginning. But there were, there were soldiers at the beginning who were horrified and did it anyway. <laughs> and, 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 and they went from being horrified to accepting it to being normal to, enjoy, to actually, you know, relishing the moment of of uh, torturing and executing another human being. Fear hardens the heart. That's the point. And these women feared God, the Hebrew, the Hebrew midwives. They feared God. So in Rwanda, th there was tribalism, led to genocide, hate became normal. In Germany, there was Arianism, led to genocide, uh, hate became normal. In America, declaring that blacks were subhuman and as such only worthy of being property, that, again, hate becomes normal. And in every case, there were a few who stood up and in the overwhelming tide of cultural voices, they said, no, enough. We fear God. We're going to do the right thing. And shelter Tutsis and, 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 and shelter Jews and, and march for the rights of blacks. So when you look at this story, it's, it's, it's incredible to me. The Hebrew midwives feared God. There's a hall of, hall of fame in the Genocide Museum in Rwanda, and it's filled with the names of those who sheltered Tutsis in the midst of the genocide. You think they're all pastors? No, no, no. They're, they weren't all pastors. 
There were pastors, in fact, who invited their Tootsie congregants into, the, into, into their buildings, barred the doors, and lit the church on fire. <laughs> and there were witch doctors sheltering Tootsies. There's Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Sophie Scholl in, in Germany. There's Andre Trockman in the Alps. There's countless others who, who said uh, to the Nazi regime, no, enough in America. There's MLK and thousands and tens upon thousands who followed in his footsteps. He who was assassinated 50 years ago this past Wednesday who stand up and say, no, enough. We need to recognize Romans 12 says our calling is to be transformed by renewing our mind. And here's why. Because the default wave of culture will move us away from the will of God. And if we allow ourselves to be swept away, our hearts will become hard. We will no longer fear God. So I love here, this is a the deal, these, but these midwives feared God. All of us need to. And what's interesting is when you look at the history of resistance movements, it's no coincidence in my opinion, over and over again, so many people who are at the forefront of resistance movements are, are women. Hebrew midwives in this case uh, my wife and I were in France, as I should last week. We went to this little museum up in La Chambon, a high plateau in the Alps where Jews were sheltered. And as I kind of thumbed through the, the history of this situation, and you're welcome to come up here and look at this book afterwards, as I thumb through this, uh, I see over and over again uh, w- women that God used uh, to shelter these Jews. Here's Here's Madeline. She traveled to various camps in the southern zone and uh, through her own wiles, she found those that were Jewish and she got them out of the southern zone. Uh, uh, excuse me. She got them out of captivity and took them up, into, uh, up, up to this plateau. That's, that's Madeline. And then uh, here's the other Madeline, Madeline Dreyfus. And, and she placed children on farms up here in, in this plateau. She knew where everyone was. And then she made plans to get these children out at night. And, and then uh, there's, an, there's another woman here, Simone. And she helped fund the whole operation through uh, getting money clandestinely uh, from banks so that Jews would have food to eat. Are you kidding me? Resistance movement. Now, like what causes people to do this? Here's what. Fear God. Like, I'm not going to allow myself to be uh, conformed to the overwhelming tide of culture that will take me in every situation to the marginalization of a people group. No, I will stand in solidarity with a people group. Why? Fear of God. Midwife, in fact, uh, means to be with a woman. And these women lived into their vocational identity because they not only feared God, but they... My second point here, they exercise courageous disobedience. So if the first quality I need is, is the fear of God, the second quality I need is courageous disobedience. The king spoke to the Hebrew midwives, verse 15, and he said, when you see a son, uh, if there's a boy that's born, put him to death. I mean, it's unambiguous, the command. Here's what happens. But the Hebrew midwives feared God And instead, verse 17, they did not do as the king had commanded, but they let the boys live. This is really interesting. 
Uh, Sifra and Pua are not just two midwives. The fact that the king speaks to them tells me that they're two midwives in authority over other midwives. And the fact that they disobey uh, and, and it becomes so substantial that the king again notices, oh, the boy, all, look, all the boys are still alive. It's not just Shifra and Pua who are now involved in civil disobedience, but their example set the stage for other midwives to also disobey so that this became a movement. Do you understand? And listen, there will never be a movement until someone breaks from the crowd uh, that is being swept away in a tide of darkness. Someone has to stay, uh, stand up and say, boom, enough, enough. We will shelter refugees. We will stand with the poor. We will care for the homeless. We will care for those on the market. Look, enough. That's, and and this, that's these midwives. Civil disobedience. They did it at, at kind of risk to their lives, you see. That's why it's civil disobedience. They disobeyed the king. Uh, Sophie Scholl, one of my heroes in, in Germany, distributed literature at the University of Munich uh, advocating uh, for the German people to resist the Reich. And she was arrested... And in her trial, her interrogator is speaking with this woman, and he says, look, you're 22, you're smart, you're articulate, you're, you're, you're powerful, you have the whole, your, your whole life in front of you, why are you throwing it away to do this? And this was her answer. Jews are disappearing and dying, and not just Jews, the mentally ill, children with disabilities, the aged, the communists, the homosexuals, they're all disappearing. And Sophie said, at 22, someone had to stand up and make a start of things. I guess it's me. <laughs> That's civil disobedience, do you understand? It's someone saying, no, I won't be swept away in the tide of conformity to culture, but Romans 12, 1, I'll be transformed by the renewing of my mind. I will stand with the poor because that's what Jesus does. Jesus stands with the poor. I will resist because that's what Jesus does. Jesus resists. The first example of civil disobedience in Western civilization are these two women, and it's important then to state the obvious, all laws are not just laws. When there are laws that allow disabled people to make less money than minimum wage, laws that allow women to be paid less than men, laws that allow children to work for less than nothing, laws that allow whites to displace people of color on a bus, laws that allow anti-Semitism, or any number of other laws, it's vital that God's people stand in solidarity with those marked for persecution. Vital. Why? Because, listen, our ultimate obedience is not to the authorities of this world. Peter said it, Acts 4.19, Acts 5.29, speaking to the temple authorities when he was arrested for talking about Jesus, he said to the temple authorities, hey, tell me, who should I obey? You or God? There's always a higher calling in the state. That's why nationalism is one of the most dangerous idols in history. <laughs> None of us owe our ultimate allegiance to any flag. Our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus Christ. So God's people are called to represent God's heart, not the heart of the state, because, hello, the state isn't always right any more than you and I are always right. And how do we know uh, what God wants? Well, a good guideline is, is this. We, we understand that God is always for the poor and vulnerable. Always. Throughout history. If you read it back, go all the way back to Leviticus, uh, God makes provision for the poor by having people not uh, harvest the edges of their fields. In Leviticus 19, verse 14, God's, God's make provision for the, uh, for the aged. In verse uh, 32 of Leviticus 19, God makes provision for the disabled. God makes provision, uh, provision for uh, refugees, for immigrants. 
And you go to, to, to Jesus' ministry, which is kind of the full flowering of God's ethic. God has provision for outcasts and women and lepers and children, none of whom had a voice at the time. God's ethic has always been to stand for justice for the weak. And if this is our ethic, we will no longer belong to a single political party. Because no party represents the weak consistently. One party cares for life in the womb and at the end of life. And all these vital freedoms that are needed to live our life with the least amount of government intrusion possible so that we can flourish and be productive and be created, creative. Another party cares for those who are ravaged by gun violence, bankrupt by health problems, searching for a living wage, single moms caring for vulnerable children. Look, don't tell me there's a party that's God's party. There's no party that's God's party. There's no nation that's God's nation. We are God's people scattered throughout the world serving a different king, a higher kingdom. God doesn't cherry pick ethical issues, neither should we. <laughs> and so in that light, the history of civil disobedience here begins to make sense. Our kingdom ethics cause us to stand with those who can't stand on their own two feet because they don't have a voice. And when we do that, sometimes we align with the left. Sometimes we align with the right. Who cares? Sometimes the issue is popular. Sometimes the issue isn't popular. There are too many without a voice, too many causes for all of us to stand for all causes. But here's what happens among God's people. There's an oppression and it lights your fire. It lights your fire. That's the phrase I use. For one, it's homelessness. It lights their fire. And then they volunteer in our homeless shelter. For another, it's hunger. It lights their fire. And then they, and then they work in our food bank. For another, it's uh, racial reconciliation. And then they get, get involved in our race and justice movement here. For another, it's being a voice uh, at work, and then they get involved in this Gotham Fellows thing that's just now beginning. But do you understand that if nothing lights your fire, that's a problem? Because what God does through the power of the Holy Spirit is he lights our fire so that an issue becomes an issue for us. And that brings me to kind of this third um, quality if there's kind of this fear of God thing and the civil disobedience thing, the third quality is this. God provides uh, through Sifra and Pua solidarity with the vulnerable. Now let me explain what I mean by this. It's not just a matter of Sifra and Pua saying, oh man, isn't it terrible what's going on? And then continue to, to through their own passivity, perpetrate the crime. Uh, in other words, let me translate that. Sifra and Pua are not uh, sentimental regarding this issue. They act. And, and here's, here's what's so important that we understand. Sentimentality will never change the world. Change happens when revelation becomes solidarity. That's when change happens. So, uh, I mean, all in the room suffer at a level from a kind of a compassion fatigue. Do you understand what I mean by that? Like we, we um, know more about the state of the world than anyone ever in the world has ever known about the state of the world. So I can't, I can't open my phone without learning of another malady. A bus drives into a restaurant in Germany. Syrian refugees are fleeing again. There's, there's uh, uh, another uh, homelessness population is increasing in, in, in Seattle. And it's just like, it's just overwhelming. And I'm, I'm not even smart enough to know how not to get that stuff on my phone. It just happens. 
And so he, uh, there it is. And, and it's a huge weight. I want to kind of set you free in this sense and challenge you in this sense. Not everything can light your fire. That should comfort you. I, I, can't, I can't fix um, the Syrian refugee crisis. I can't, I, can't, I, I, I can't decide who shoots up a school. I can't prevent it. I can't, I can't stop a bus from driving into a restaurant in Germany. I, like what? Okay, they're here. I see it. It's in my newsfeed. I can't do anything. But here's the, here's, the, here's the equally important, maybe more important point. Something needs to light my fire. What is it for you? Is it human trafficking? Is it life in the womb? Is it life at the end of life? Is it the development, development, uh, developmentally disabled? Is it, is it those uh, who are dying of cancer? Is it those who have no health care? Is it those who have no home? Uh, is, it, is it people with gender identity issues who, who are being persecuted? Like, who is it for you? Find your fire. And if you don't have a fire, that's a problem. Because you see, compassion... These women had compassion for the, the Hebrew boys, and compassion literally means to suffer with. And in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, this is what we read regarding God's own character. God is compassionate. That means God suffers with. And this is the basis of God's intervention with the nation of Israel. God says in Exodus chapter 3, here's why I will deliver. And I love this. I've seen the suffering of the Jews. I've heard their cry. I've seen their oppression. So, here's God. My thoughts and prayers are with you. No. No. I've seen the, the oppression. I've seen the suffering. I've heard their cries. So watch. So I have what? Come, come down. I've come down to deliver you. I'm not up anymore. I'm down. I'm not apart from. I'm with. That's solidarity. And solidarity is compassion. And hear me, without compassion, nothing happens. We can light candles all night. But if I'm not willing to step into the fray and listen, suffer with, if I'm not willing to suffer with, nothing will happen. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, God judges the two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. We often think of Sodom and Gomorrah and we elevate sexual sin as their primal, uh, primary cause of guilt. Listen, they had problems in that arena. Absolutely, there's no question about it. But in Ezekiel, here's what God says uh, regarding Sodom and Gomorrah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She had what? Three things, right? Uh, wealth, arrogance, abundant ease, and didn't help the poor and needy. Wow. Sodom? What, like, what's she guilty of? Remind me again. Oh, here's the thing. <clears throat> really wealthy nation. Like, there were people who had more, they had so much stuff, they were renting storage sheds. Arrogant. We're the greatest nation on earth. Lots of free time and did not help the poor and needy. Uh, yeah, if my paradigm is to build a life so that I need never suffer, I promise you this, I'm outside of God's story. Because as soon as, as, soon as I hear God's voice, uh, 
speaking to me about something to light my fire. God is calling me now to stand in solidarity with those who are suffering. And if that means jail, it means jail. And if it means death, it means death. And if it means poverty, it means poverty. And if it means just a night out at a homeless shelter, that's what it means. But whatever it is, when God lights a fire, I have to move. I'm aware. I've given heed. I've come down. And here's these women. No, it's not okay that these baby boys are killed. No, it's not okay that Jews are disappearing, being taken to camps. It's not okay that the equivalent of five jumbo jets filled with women die every day in labor. And 99% of those deaths are easily fixable with access to simple health care. Not okay. Not okay that there's a massive migration of refugees more than at any time in the world and that babies are living in squalor and, and, and dying of dysentery because they can't drink clean water. That's not okay. Sexual assault, not okay. Human trafficking, not okay. Endless poverty, rise in homelessness, not okay. What lights your fire? Golf? <laughs> Baseball? Hope not. Because until the fire is lit by the Holy Spirit, we find ourselves outside of God's story. According to Genesis 1 and 2, our calling as humans is to show the world what God looks like. Because that's what it means to be made in God's image. And what does God do? God suffers with. That's why God delivered Israel. God suffers with. That's why God doesn't delight in the death of anyone, Ezekiel 18.32, because God suffers with. That's why Christ came. Philippians chapter 2. I saw your suffering. This is Jesus. I'm looking down on the 21st century and I see it. I see the homelessness. I see the wealth gap. I see the refugee crisis. I see the political duplicity. I see the corruption. I see the addiction to opioids. I, I see it. And so here's Jesus. I've come down. I'm not up here, thoughts and prayers. I've come down. Here's Jesus, Emmanuel. God, what? With us, I suffer with you. I live with you. I die with you. I rise so that you can rise and be free. <laughs> and our calling? To be that presence in the world. MLK was. Sophie Scholl was in Germany. Dorothy Day was in the uh, poverty in New York. Amy Carmichael was uh, with the temple prostitutes in southern India. Mariel Philip was on, on the plateau in La Chambon in France as she found funds for the, for the Jews. Uh, Dora Rivera, a physician on that same plateau, she was as she oversaw hiding the Jews and moving them into Switzerland. Amy Carmichael was, Jackie Pullinger was in Hong Kong. Megan Rice was when at the age of 84 this nun broke into a nuclear facility to protest the accumulation of bomb-grade uranium. Over and over and over again, people said this, enough! And some were arrested, and some died early, and some lived to be 95. It's not the point. The point is, they're in God's story because something lit their fire, and they paid attention to the flame, and they stepped in. And if you do that, the next thing you know, you'll be right on the thick of God's story, and God will shake our city. When the fire that God wants to light in you is fanned into flame and we begin to step into God's story and make a difference. This is our calling. So we'll pray together and then have a moment to respond regarding the fire of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you that we're invited to make a difference in the world. 
regardless of gender, regardless of wealth, regardless of physical ability. Every one of us have a part to play. My prayer, Lord Jesus, is that uh, even this morning as we, as we worship together, you'd light our fire and that you'd move us into not uh, sentimental uh, sorrow, but to, to courageous action. May we be people who stand with those who you call us to stand with. And we'll thank you for the adventure that awaits as we follow you as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.